Good afternoon and welcome to Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. Alex Sokolow is off this week. Activism and organizing movements and events has become so much more prevalent in the past four or five years. And we have one of the biggest organizers, activists on the eastern end of Long Island, Lisa Vitino, as our guest today. Lisa has been involved in immigration advocacy work for over 16 years, attending protests, marches, and municipal board meetings throughout Long Island, always seeking to make a difference. She has visited the border city of Tijuana numerous times to help advocate for asylum seekers, saying, I always have a Sharpie to 27 East's Anissa Abdullah in April of 2019, a Sharpie that Lisa Vitina would use to write emergency contact information on the skin of babies' backs in case they were taken away from their parents at the processing center so it would be easier to reunite later on. She's also one of the organizers with Willie Jenkins of the Black Lives Matter movement on the East End. Welcome, Lisa Vitino. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, I remember meeting you ages ago, I mean, I mean, probably eight or nine years ago, was it, it was like the same sex marriage, uh, equality. So you've been doing this for a long, long time for a young person, the young person that you are. So when did you, when do you think that the first, I don't know, when did you get the first inklings of being involved or, or trying to make a difference? So I kind of like what you and Alec were speaking about, um, my parents in a very inadvertent way kind of created this, right? Um, My dad, uh, growing up, he was a a blue collar auto mechanic from Massapequa, a conservative guy, Um, but he was heavily involved in Kiwanis. So he would bring me along. Um, So Christmas morning, we would go with uh, vans and pick up homeless people at the train station and bring them to a restaurant of one of the Kiwanis guys and um, give out presents to, to families in need and volunteer for Special Olympics. So that kind of put um, a really 
instilled like a good value in me, like to help others at a really young age. Um, And then my mom uh, really liked politics. She liked talking about politics. So uh, I kind of got that piece from my mom and my mom and my dad did not see eye to eye on politics at all. Well, that's interesting. So that must have been a very interesting uh, dinner table conversation for a little one. They just did it. (laughs) That's pretty much it. My mom, when my dad wasn't around, would talk to me about her views of politics, but they never really talked together about it. Um, But my mom was like very much not happy that she has to be like a registered Republican because everybody on Long Island is a Republican. And if you want to get anywhere on Long Island, you have to be a registered Republican. Like that was still back in that kind of 70s, 80s mentality. And, um, but, you know, behind the scenes, my mom would be like, you know, it's really important to vote. I don't agree with this. This is how I would like things. And then as um, I was in eighth grade when Clinton Gore happened, Right. Um, the first time. And that was my first campaign that I actually volunteered on. So, so you, wait, you were in eighth grade and you were campaigning. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's, amazing. It, it's kind of crazy to like look back on it now <laughs> because You're campaigning with, for adults to like to register them to vote or to, I mean, what, what kind of, what kind of, you know, feedback did you get as a child, you know, it, being involved with politics? Uh, Interesting. It was an interesting feedback because you know, who did I talk to? I talked to basically my my parents' friends about politics, um, my family about politics, and none of them agreed with me. Um, but at the same time, I think they liked seeing a young person involved. So they didn't like discourage me completely. Um, but Lisa, but, you must have had to be so knowledgeable I mean, what kind of what what kind of knowledge could they give an eighth? I mean, I don't mean to sound like I'm talking down to kids. I, I there are kids who are brilliant. There's no doubt about it. But I'm about to be 57 years old, and I don't feel comfortable like I'm educated enough to discuss politics. So how did you do it? Well, and this was also like literally a year before my English teacher wheeled in this big computer and we connected to America online for the first time. So wow. this is even, you know, you, you, it's before you have all these things. So basically what I would do is uh, my dad had a gas station and he had tons of magazines. So he would bring them home for me, which, you know, maybe he might kick himself for now, but uh, he, I would read them. Um, And then at the time, a lot of the major magazines like Time would put out like an election book where like it would tell you about the different candidates and some of their their policies. I would watch them on TV. Um, And that's kind of how I got my knowledge. Uh, Today would all be, you know. Well, it would be a, a combination of information and misinformation. Right. You wouldn't right. know the source. So you actually were lucky to have, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of paper and print. So there you go. Uh, Lisa, this is, uh, this is just so fascinating. We're talking with Lisa Vitino, who is local activist and, and student. Are you going back to school? I am. Yeah. Talk right now. That is amazing. We're going to talk more with her after we take a short break. You're listening to us on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. 
You're listening to Sundays on the East End, and we will be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement from 88.3 WLIW-FM. Founded in 1987, The Retreat is a nonprofit licensed domestic violence agency. It provides a number of services to help break the cycle of family violence. The Retreat offers a secure residence on the east end of Long Island and works with local, state, and national agencies to provide a safe haven, food, clothing, and support. More information at theretreatinc.org or 631-329-4398. I'm going to watch you shine, going to watch you grow. Gonna paint a sign so you'll always know as long as one and one is two. There could never be a father of his daughter more than I love you. So we're talking with Lisa Votino, Sundays on the East End, and um Lisa, so you're you're in Massapequa. Your dad owns a gas station. Um, he's a Kiwanis. Brings you around to to you know help homeless people. Brings you home magazines. You become politically informed. You're you're in eighth grade. You're campaigning for Clinton Gore. Um, you know where where what was high school like for you? It was a it was a mixed bag. Um, I. I was actually born and raised in Sable. My dad was from Massapequa, um, but Sable was still a, a very conservative town, um, a mostly white town. Uh, I think the thing that that saved me was um, I played viola as a kid, um, and I got into Manhattan School of Music prep. So on Saturdays, I would go to you know Manhattan School of Music and spend my whole day in classes and, and instruction oftentimes skipping those classes and going around the city. My poor parents paid out, you know, so much money for me to do that. But I think that, um, I was about to ask you, about to ask you to pull out a viola and play something for me. So my viola needs to be fixed right now or else I would. Um, I think the education that that gave me, even though I wasn't necessarily always in class, was well worth the money that they spent. Um, and uh, that was back before Harlem was was gentrified. I was, you know, three blocks from there. And uh, that's kind of what my weekends were like. I, I would spend my time in, in Harlem or down in the village, and then I would go back to my very, very white home and school. <laughs> and um, that is one of the one of the really interesting points that I want to make. We we are on radio and podcast so people can't see you. You are white and very. you you are very <laughs> you know most of the work you do is with the underserved communities like the, uh, the I want to hear about you going to the border in Tijuana and now you're like extremely involved in Black Lives Matter and you I know that you've been involved with the Shinnecock Reservation. In fact, you lived there. You married a Shinnecock man, right? You, and, you know, I mean, what do you think it was that made you want to, I mean, we all want to, but you do it. Like you actually campaign for the, the people who need it the most. I think it, you know, I tried to ask myself that question a lot. Like, how did I end up where I am? Um, and I think it was, just a mixture of things. I was always exposed to um, just really good people. 
Um, and then they would introduce me to other really good people. And it kind of just kept, you know, I just, I'm, I love learning. Um, <laughs> obviously I'm 41 and back in school, but, uh, sounds like the name of the sitcom, <laughs> right? Like I, it should be, honestly, my life is, <laughs> it's a very interesting how old, life right now. How old is your daughter, Lily? Seven and a half. Okay. Yeah. Uh, going on like 26, but yeah. <laughs> um, I, it, I think it was just, you know, I think at a young age, I realized that there, the playing field wasn't even for everyone. Um, and I think uh, then, uh, you know, people that I've, I've met over the years and then, you know, things that I was experiencing firsthand kind of all mushed together um, and I've always just felt uh, a lot more comfortable with with people of color. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I just I, mix. Like it, yeah. it didn't matter to me. Like it literally doesn't matter to me what what anybody looks or acts like. If they're a good person, then I'm I'm gonna be there and and hang out with them. Even if somebody makes a mistake, I'm still gonna be there and support them. So, um, that's it, it. Yeah, it's. I don't know what actually made it happen. Well, like I said, I, I met you um, in front of St. St. Michael's. Uh, was that yeah. what it is? St. Michael's in Watermill. Uh, we were all dressed in red. I'm trying to even think, was that 2011, 2012? We were all holding signs for a, a same-sex marriage, equality, um, uh, you know, LGBT rights. And it had to be DOMA. It yeah, had to be DOMA. DOMA. It was DOMA. And so that's got to be 2012 or 2011. I'm trying to think when it was. So I think it was heard in, the case was heard in 2012. The decision came down in 2013 because Lily, that was actually her first kind of celebration. It was a, a day of celebration. And she was like, maybe, I think that decision came down in June. So maybe she was like five months old. But no, I, I take it back. No, the arguments were heard earlier in 2013 because when we first did it, she was like, I don't know, two or three months old. <laughs> she was really itty bitty. And then the decision came down and she was, she was a little bit bigger. So I mean, but there again, we're just talking about basic human rights. We're not just talking about skin color or, or you know, underprivileged. We're, you're talking about LGBT. Who can be privileged? You know, there's, yeah. it's not, it's, it, there's something about your brain, Lisa, that I find so fascinating that you don't just get, you know, enraged as some of us do when you, when you hear of, uh, you know, mistreatment or, or, you know, someone, like you said, the level of the playing field not being level and someone not getting the help they, they, they've earned and they deserve, but you actually do something about it. Tell me about like the first, I want to hear about the very first, you know, event that you organized. Like how old were you? What was it? How, what was the turnout like? What was it for? Tell me everything. Uh, what was my first event? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I can tell you like the first kind of independent thing I did was I was in sixth grade. And wait, wait, so we're going back before the Clinton Gore yeah, stuff. Yeah, because this is this is actually kind of hilarious. Because again, my poor parents get the brunt of everything. Um, in sixth grade, 
I was campaigning our school to get recycling and they did it. Was I sixth grade? It might have been fourth grade. <laughs> they, it was one, one of those grades. Somewhere in there. You were an embryo. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I was like, you know, I could read like maybe a chapter book at this point. Um, they, they wouldn't recycle. Like at home, we have recycling cans. At schools, they weren't doing recycling back then. So I campaigned them to let me start this, this group called Styrofoam Patrol. And people would put their plastic utensils into this container that I then would bring home and put in my parents' garbage can, which I often forgot in like my mom's car after school. And... Uh, so that was, uh, I actually have a picture of that someplace of like the sign I made and me standing in front of it. Like That's, that's amazing. Well, that's a good, well, we'll fast forward now to like, um, being an adult. I mean, uh, you know, what, and coming out, like what brought you out to the East End? Uh, so my dad works in East Hampton. Um, I, he used to work at the Getty station on, uh, going into East Hampton and I had moved out to California. I came back and I needed a job because I was working, living with him at the time. It's my early 20s. And uh, he got me a job at the same shop. We went in to work every day. We came home every day. We ate dinner. We, like, uh, and it was kind of cool because me and my dad didn't have the best relationship growing up. But um, he's my best friend. We're, you know, me and my dad are super close. That's amazing when we can do those, you know, those, we can mend those fabrics in our life. Um, Because, yeah, I think a lot of people had really rough relationships, but even during your rough relationship with your father, or not rough, but, you know, not as close, he still was instilling these like (laughs) recycling and politics and all that to get the chance later on to become such great friends. That's just such a gift. So, so you're out here, he's working, he's found you a job, you're on the East End, you're having dinner with dad. What happened? So uh, the season ends, I get laid off from the Getty station. And um, now I don't have a job. And of course, my dad is not having that. So the coffee shop that we stopped at every morning, um, we he had gone friend with, friendly with them. And he they asked where I was one morning. And my dad looked like, why? Do you have a job for And they're like, actually. Um, and it was uh, the Thunderbird Coffee Shop on Montauk Highway on the Shinnecock Reservation. Sure. And uh, it was my, well, now my ex's uh, aunt's coffee shop. And uh, that is how I met uh, Talk, my ex. And uh, we, we, uh, lived there for a little bit. We lived off there for a little bit and then we built our house there. So, uh, and of course then we had Lily. So uh, I spent about uh, on and off 15 years on the res. So, so you really got to see uh, something that most, you know, white people don't get to see, which is the, how the inside of the reservation and the, um, the mores and the and everything that happens and and how underserved a community it is in this in this area is that correct yeah definitely definitely and it, it's also really interesting because um a lot of times i would find out what what happened on the res from the news 
even though it happened like a block away, because, you know, there's a lot to be said, I think, anywhere that if you're not involved in doing bad things, you often don't know the bad things are happening. Like, um, and it's such a small, tiny, tiny aspect that, you know, it's a shame we don't hear more about the positive things that happen there because there's amazing thing, even just in, in that, that short period of time that I, I got to, to be there, um, how much good things happen. And, um, you know, it's just, it's like regular community, just on a much smaller scale. So, um, but it's beautiful there. It's absolutely beautiful. I love it. I still, you know, go and hang out whenever I possibly can. And um, we're leading now to kind of grown up mom, Lisa, Bettina with Lily. Uh, no longer living on the reservation, but now we're coming into uh, 2016, um, the election and uh, everything that's been going on since then. I think you've probably, if you had a Fitbit girl, <laughs> you have marched. You, I just got one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was saying for all the protests and marches that you have been on in the past four years um, have just been incredible. So we're going to talk about that and um, and your involvement in, in all the activism on the East End more when we come back after these messages. You're listening to Sundays on the East End, and our guest is Lisa Vitino. We'll be right back. I'm Meg Noonan, inviting you to join me on 88.3 WLIW-FM for Freeform Radio at its new time every Sunday night from 9 to 11. You'll hear a lively mix of rock in all its glorious subgenres, plus a heavy dose of soul, R&B, and more. So tune in to Freeform Radio, where variety reigns supreme, Sundays at 9 p.m. on 88.3 WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. She's fair and she is quiet, Lord, she doesn't look like me She made me love the morning, she's a holiday at sea The New York streets are as busy as they always used to be But I am the mother of Evangeline The first things that she took from me were selfishness and sleep she broke a thousand heirlooms I was never meant to keep She filled my life with color, canceled plans and trashed my car But none of that was ever who we are Outside of my windows are the mountains and the snow I hold you while you're sleeping and I wish that I could go All my roadie friends are out accomplishing their dreams but I am the mother of Evangeline And they've still got their morning paper and their coffee and their time And they still enjoy their evenings with the skeptics and the wine Oh, but all the wonders I have seen I will see a second time From inside of the ages through your eyes Welcome back, Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy, and I'm speaking with our guest, uh, incredible activist, goddess, woman, superhuman person, Lisa Vitino. Uh, and so, okay, we've kind of gotten to 
now we now we're in the 2016. Now we're we're right around the election, the last election, and uh, there was a lot of marches and protests and things that were going on, and uh, and I want to kind of take you through that to like the the more recent your involvement with Black Lives Matter and and the other stuff. So tell me about how busy you've been over the past four years. Like, did you think this is what you were going to be doing with your life when you had the viola? No, I you know I, no. But it, it it makes sense to me now. Like in when I reflect on myself, like it, it, I definitely could see um, this this outcome. <laughs> um, it is, what it is is this incredible ability that you have, not just to like I keep saying, not just to see these um, these injustices, but then to become. Um, mobilized enough to, to, to not only mobilize yourself, but also to mobilize all these other people. And we're not talking about the pandemic now, we're talking pre-pandemic. Um, so it, it made sense to you to do it. Um, tell me about like, a, do, were you involved in the women's marches during the last election period? Not as so, so I kind of skipped the women's marches, um, not because I was against them in any way. Um, we, I had a very, um, unfeminist thing going on during the women's march. I was uh, one of my best friend's bridesmaids. Uh, so we had her uh, bridal shower the same day. <laughs> so it's funny. People are like, oh, you definitely, like, tell us about your time at the women's march. I'm like, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great, though. You need balance in your life. Well, then let's go forward and, and really start talking about your involvement with the immigrants. Uh, because uh, as soon as uh, the last election happened and we started, uh, you know, finding out more about the border control and, and new, you know, new laws were affected and, you know, put in place, you didn't just sit there. You didn't even organize marches. You went there. You went yeah. to Tijuana. So tell me, I mean, tell me about everything leading up to that and what, you know, you're, you're a mom of, you have this young kid at home and you went like how many times? Four times you went down there? Five. Five. I went five. I was supposed to go six, and then the the pandemic happened. Oh, that five that times. Pandemic. So, <laughs> so I, I really want to hear about. Let Let's back up then. Um, and and when did you first get an inkling about this? And when did you know that you wanted to do something about it? And what? How did you organize your trip? So I'm just going to back up a little bit because I think what people don't realize um, a lot of times about me is that um, in so I was a, a very fierce uh, Obama supporter, um, as a lot of us were. And um, I organized a lot of the volunteer stuff out here for him, was constantly on the phone, doing voter registration, voter turnout. We had the highest voter turnout on the res ever, um, which was a lot of like calling people and being like, hey, your grandson didn't, you know, vote yet today. You know, do you, do you need, does he need a ride? Give me his number. I'll call him and make him go to the polls. Like it was a real like community centric strategy. Right. And, uh, but right after that, literally five days later, um, Marcelo Lucero is killed in a hate crime in Patchogue. Yeah, right here on. And, and, um, at, what people don't realize is at the time I was working for an organization called Long Island Winds that my job was to speak to non-immigrants about immigration. And um, it, then I find myself 
in the midst of this hate murder. And um, I, I remember like, of course, like I, I wasn't quite media, but I, and I wasn't quite activist. It was kind of straddling this weird place. And um, I remember the morning after, or yeah, two mornings after, um, there was a, uh, you know, a press conference and his brother, Josello was there. And I remember like just, he, he couldn't speak English very well. Um, and he had to grieve in this like really horrifying, gut-wrenching way, very publicly. And um, I just remember, remember thinking to myself, when the cameras are gone, I'm going to be there for him. And it was like a very conscious thing. Um, and it's funny because I didn't talk to him. Like I would just be there like <laughs> for whenever he, he had an event or he was speaking, I would just be there. And I, I think to myself now how creepy that had to have been. <laughs> but <laughs> I, You know what? And now you're bringing me back. I say that I first met you obviously um, during uh during that March for Doma, but I was acquainted with you because of all the posts you were making on Facebook. Can you say his name again? Well, Marcelo Lucero is the one that Patton was right. killed. Um, Marcelo Lucero is, is his brother. Right. And now one of my best friends. So. Oh my God. Well, I remember you posting a lot about Marcelo, and I think it was close to around the time with Trayvon Martin, and, and that was going on or had just happened or it happened right afterward. So it was um, almost like a movement that was going on nationally to kind of rescue these kids. But yours was more of a, an immigrant um, situation yeah. rather yeah. than race. But um, did, so you were there at all these events and now you guys are really great friends. But it really, um, it fueled your fire even more. Yeah, it, it was it was clear there was a really big disconnect, especially on Long Island. I mean, there is nationally and we definitely see that magnified now. But, you know, how you had seven young men come together and think that this was an okay thing. And then as we spoke to more people, we realized they had done this dozens of times before in, in different groups to different people. Um, and this, it, it was just a, such a toxic environment. And it was like, how do we get ourselves out of there? Like, obviously something is broken. How do we fix it? And I think that kind of goes back to your, like, in my brain, like, I'm constantly thinking of every scenario possible <laughs> and, like, working how that would happen out. So, like, where I'm trying to think, you know, most people think of the immediate, the reactive. I'm already, like, six steps ahead <laughs> and working on the proactive, like in my head. So um, okay. you fix this. You you live in the solution instead of the problem. You don't sit yeah. there hopefully wring your hands. Oh, the state of the nation and everything. You just get out there and you create. I mean, car the word karma means action. By the way, so you're yes. like creating karma all over Long Island. <laughs> so. We want. We were going to get to the talking about the border visits, um, and that obviously started with the death of Marcelo. Um, yeah. tell, tell me more about how that continued. Um, so, I, eventually, I went on a, a delegation down to Oaxaca, Mexico, and learned about the roots of migration. Um, Minerva was on that. Um, or Minerva Perez from Ola was on that trip with me. Um, 
Sandra Dunn, who is the, the um, immigration uh, part of Hagedorn Foundation at the time, Hagedorn paid for the trip. And that was like a little over two weeks and heavy, 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 like learning about every aspect of migration um, from Southern Mexico to New, essentially New York. I mean, the States in general, but we were seeing a lot of, uh, you know, New York has just as a wide diaspora of, of different people that come from all over. Sure. Um, so that kind of like recommitted me um, to, and, and I found that I had a uh, kind of an upper hand in some of those conversations because now I had direct experience. So like when people came at me with like their, their fake talking points, <laughs> I'd be like, actually you're completely wrong. Um, and it, so that's also like, I think the other piece of me that, that makes me part of who I am is that like, I want to go see firsthand how things happen. Um, I was not planning that with the border. Um, I had, I had in December, um, early December, gotten a call from December, from of, December of what year? I'm sorry, December of 2018. Okay. So this was the whole um, the caravan is coming. They're filled with rapists and murderers, and they're going to invade our border. Meanwhile, caravans happen all the time. <laughs> like sure. people are just like catching on to this, but that has happened forever and ever and ever. Okay. You know, as long as there's been a line there, there's been caravans there. Yeah. So I, mean, I think some of my ancestors were caravan or nomad gypsy types. You know. So yeah, I um, agree. But what is so amazing is, uh, you know, I really think our listeners are going to want to hear about how you went down to the border, what you saw there. I mean, and just how you mo mobilized yourself and what happened when you were down there and what made so, you come back. So the, uh, it, the point that really made me decide to go down there, which is one of my most favorite stories, is that um, I decided not to. And then, you know, uh, maybe a couple of days after Christmas, uh, I was watching CNN with Lily, who was five at the time, because everybody watches CNN with their five-year-olds. Of course. And, right, of course. And um, they showed a video of a mom and a mother and a father being separated from their two young children. And the children are hysterical. And, and Lily just looks at me with these big eyes and is like, Mama, can't you do something to help them? Wow. And in out of, that out moment, of the mouths of out of the mouths of babes. Yeah, in that moment, I had a really big decision to make. I could I could either say, "No, mommy can't help them," which would have been a lie, right? Or yes, mama can go and try to help. And uh, that's how I ended up <laughs> going to the border. Um, wow. I'm so glad now. I did watch CNN with her that night. Um, I think. Originally, the, fir I, the first trip was extremely chaotic. Um, the car sanctuary caravan that is kind of who I went with is a project out of um, the New Sanctuary Coalition in New York City. And they had a campaign to do 40 days and 40 nights down there um, helping asylum seekers. The problem was is that I came in on the 40th day. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. Not good timing that time, Lisa. Yeah. Um, so my first day there was um, just trying to acclimate myself. But at the same time, everybody was preparing to leave. But we had this, this space there. Um, we called it the office. And it was basically a community migrant space. So people come to the border. They're waiting they get a number. You go and you register in this, the list on the list is what it's called. And you get a number. And with that number, you wait for your number to be called, which, you know, by the time I, my second trip was like a three month wait. So now you're stuck in Tijuana. You don't have any resources. Um, It costs money to use the bathroom. You can't, there's no public bathrooms the shelters are closed during the day. They, they often close from like seven to six. So you have families, you have single people just kind of roaming the streets of, of Tijuana where they're not safe because a lot of the times they were running away from gangs in their own countries. And the gangs then had certain like surrogates um, up in, in along the border to catch people. Um, so the office served as a, a safe place for them during the day. And uh, I, I meant to ask, do you speak Spanish? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Stop everything. Stop everything. So I was speaking with Lisa Votino, who, you know, has always been involved as long as anyone has known her in just being the, the upraised fist in, in the front of the crowd. And here you are going down to Tijuana. <laughs> We're both laughing. You are just amazing without speaking Spanish to help the asylum seekers. And you went four, five times. Yeah. Now, the part I read at the beginning about you with your Sharpie writing in emergency contact information on the backs of babies so they wouldn't be separated from their parents. What other out of this world experiences that people like on the East End just have never experienced did you have moments? My first day there, um, there was a, so when you register for this list, you register how many people are, are with you, you know, and you give their names. Uh, a mother had given birth along the way um, as she was walking up from, I don't even know what country she was actually from, but from one of the the Central American countries. And um, when she got up to Tijuana to register on the list, it didn't dawn on her that her son would need a number as well. Um, So the day that her number was called, which happened to be the first day that I was there, it, she was only allowed to bring one of her children with her and um, she had to choose and she chose her, her older daughter and left her son with a woman who also was seeking asylum um, until they could find a way to bring the, the baby here to the States. But she had only met this person, you know, in the, the two months, three months that, that they had been walking. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm not just down there as like an activist. I'm also a mom. And those things, um, I looked at, at the moms, it, you know, have definitely had a special place in my heart because um, the decisions that they had to grapple with were just mind blowing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the shelters, I mean, the shelters were full, the shelters, some of them were not the safest environments. There was a lot of abuse that went on. There's, um, you know, 90% of women who make that journey to the, the border, um, face, um, sexual violence of some kind. So, you know, when you're, you're dealing with a woman that they, they've dealt with an enormous amount of, of trauma. So I have nothing but respect. We're going to take a little break. We're talking with Lisa Vettino um, about these amazing experiences you've had. When we come back, I really want to talk about Black Lives Matter, uh, your involvement with that, and what it is it like um, organizing a protest during a pandemic. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy on 88.3 WLIW-FM. Alex Socklow is not with us this week. We'll be right back after this. Hi, this is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. Under the devil's knee, oh Lord, I'm under the devil's knee. Oh, I'm screaming, how can I breathe, my Lord, from under that devil's knee? George Floyd was a young boy in a project called the Briggs. It was hard to see a way out of Houston, Texas. And all them kids were teaser because of where we live. But he never planned to stay long. Cooney Holmes' kid, his his love for basketball, got him a scholarship all the way at South Florida State. We're back. Sunday's on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. Alec couldn't be with us this week, but we're speaking, or I'm speaking, I'm using the royal way, of course, with the incredible Lisa Vettino, who is just a, a activist. I just hate saying the word activist over and over again. You, you're, a, you know, you're a rabble rouser, you, and you serve the underserved community. Oh my gosh, I once was working on a press release. Here's because it's all about me. Let me tell a little Bridget Leroy story. I was working on a press release that had been issued by this huge corporation and they meant to say the underserved community and instead they had written the undeserved community. And they were a really big billionaire company and it was my job to correct it and I almost let it go out that way. But I didn't because I wanted the pat on the back. I wanted the pat on the back more than I wanted to make a difference, Lisa. I'm a bad person. Anyway, let's get back. Let's get back to talking to Lisa Vettino. So I mean, we just had this unbelievable experience. And I'm sure you had so many of them down in Tijuana. But then the pandemic came. Then everything has blown up. Uh, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, all of these uh, terrible injustices against black people. Tell me how you got involved and tell me about your reception uh, and, you know, being a white woman, being so involved with this. So I think what, what I, a lot of people don't realize is that I was, I was involved in Black Lives Matter previously. So both Willie Jenkins, who's my co-organizer that we've been doing the BLM stuff out here, um, both of us had been involved in, in Black Lives Matter previously and you know, we see it very much. I, I'm going to say we, as the, just as you just did, um, that it's a simple statement. Black lives matter. <laughs> like I, why there's controversy over this. I don't 
don't understand because once I take it to like having a, a normal conversation with somebody, they're like, I agree, but, and then we can have a conversation. Um, so when George Floyd was murdered, um, <laughs> immediately I had people starting messaging me being like, are you going to do a protest? And I was just like, you know, it's the pandemic. I really don't want, you know, like. Sure. And you have to thought of, think about Lily, your child as well. Mm-hmm. You know. but what's kind of sad is I didn't immediately think of my own child. <laughs> I never think about my children. It's completely okay. I know. I, kind of do, I, do, I just do me. You do you. <laughs> yeah. My, my first reaction was that it's, it's a pandemic. People of color are being especially hard hit. Um, and I didn't want them to feel like they had to come out to something to support it. Or, and, you know, I didn't want anybody to have to put themselves in danger. Um, then Riverhead did theirs. There was two actions in Riverhead. And by then it was like, when is ours? <laughs> um, so you and Willie Jenkins put together that, the, the, the lie down in Bridgehampton where everybody yeah. lay down for eight minutes. How long was it again? Eight minutes. Eight minutes. 46 seconds. Right. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. The, the time that uh, it took for George Floyd to die with a on his neck. So here's really the big question. Do you feel like you've made a difference? I do. I do. And um, sometimes it's not, you know, I've, I always try to set my goals very tiny because when you're an organizer and you set these really big goals, then it feels like you're never getting anything done and it can become really overwhelming and really depressing. And, you know, you just kind of get lost in the weeds. Um, so I've had really good conversations um, and, you know, Governor Cuomo came down with his executive order saying that communities with you know, municipalities that have a police department have to create these um, review boards where community stakeholders, the police, and the municipality come together and they review the policies and have that dialogue. And I think in in some places that dialogue might just kind of be like matter of fact or, you know, just something to check off a box. I think here in Southampton Town, our, we're taking it seriously and it, we're giving it a real chance um, and I think what people don't realize is, yes, we were protesting what happened to George Floyd, but we also worked hand in hand with the Southampton Town Police. So when we lay down in the street, um, the police knew we were doing that and they were already stopping traffic for it. So um, it's, it's, it's not. Bring, it's to bring awareness. It wasn't to stop traffic. It was not to, I mean, believe you're out here. You know how bad traffic is in the hand. Yeah. Yeah. And originally we even weren't, we didn't realize how many people were going to show up for, for Bridgehampton. So originally we were even going to leave the street open um, until we laid down in it. That was the plan because you want cars driving by. So they see what you're doing and you know, you're getting your message out. Well, our 300 people that we kind of estimated turned into 1400 people and it was a small space on main street in Bridgehampton And we were actually like double lapping ourselves. That's how many people were there. But if you're ever on my Facebook, there's great photos from above from (laughs) they're actually from the police drones that were watching our our protest. (laughs) The Southampton town police sent me those photos. So 
Well, that was, um, that was still kind of, um, I mean, I guess that was at the height of the pandemic, wasn't it? I mean, out here. Yeah, it was in July. Within, within a couple of weeks. I mean, the, our protest was uh, the first week of June. That's right, early June. That's right. So, what if, I mean, we're getting ready to kind of wrap up the show in a few minutes. What have you been doing now? I know that you've gone back to school. What are you, what are you, what are you studying in college? International human rights. Of, of course. And, uh, and, you know, what, what, it's October 4th. What is on the horizon for you over the next 29 days before the election? Get out the vote, get out the vote, get out the vote. Um, and depending, uh, depending on what happens with um, Justice Gimbert's seat, uh, taking to the streets very likely. Um, so that's pretty much my my only focus is school, my kid, and election. <laughs> like in, in any myriad of order as, <laughs> as, as the days progress. If people want to get in touch with you or if they want to get involved, what's the best way for them to get involved locally on the East End in any kind of, uh, you know, organizing, if they want to follow in your footsteps, if they want to join a protest, is there a website or, or a Facebook page or anything that they can go to? I always say um, you could always go to my Facebook and send me a message or um, me and Willie are inherited the um, Black Lives Matter of Eastern Long Island Facebook group. So you could join there. Um, trolls, if you try to join, I look at everybody's profile before I hit join. Uh, so, um, which I, sometimes there would be 50 or 60 profiles in a day. Um, but we post a lot of stuff there and people from all over Long Island actually post things there. So that's a, a good way to kind of stay in touch. So we've been speaking with Lisa Votino, uh, and if you are interested in uh, looking at her Facebook page or, or any of the groups she's involved in, her last name is spelled V as in victory, O-T-I-N-O. Votino. Uh, Lisa, it's been just a joy to, to, to talk to somebody who is so on fire. Um, so many of us, I think, right now are, are kind of losing steam and are overwhelmed with everything that's happened with 2020. What is it that keeps you going? What keeps you happy? What nourishes your spirit? Um, when I organize something and at least one other person shows up, <laughs> that is honestly, besides my daughter who gets dragged mercilessly to everything. Um, I can always create the safe place. I can always, you know, do my best, but um, it's when you see somebody else show up, that's really the most important thing. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. You're listening to Sundays on the East End, usually with Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow. It's just me, Bridget Leroy, and we're coming to you on 88.3 WLIW-FM, right in the town of Southampton. And we will be back next week. Everybody be well and stay well. The crops are all in. The peaches are ruddy. The oranges are piled in their creosote dumps. They're flying you back to the Mexico border. Pay all your money to read back again. Goodbye to my Amigos, Jesus, Jesus, Maria. Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big
My father's own father, he waded that river They took all the money he made in his life My brothers and sisters, they worked in your orchards Rode the big trucks till they lay down and died Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios mis amigos, Jesus The sky plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon A fireball, a lightning that shook all our hills Who are all these friends who are falling like dry leaves The radio said they're just deportees Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios Jesus Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane Oh, they will call you the deportees That's all I can remember. <laughs> <laughs>